We are in 1 Corinthians this morning and looking here in these verses in chapter 1. Last week we were introduced to this church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was a gifted church. The church of Corinth was a growing church. But what we're going to find as we go through this book is that the church at Corinth was also a grossly carnal church. Now here's the deal. The world needs the church. Church matters. We are called, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, to be the pillar and ground of truth. The church of Jesus Christ is called to hold high the light of Christ, to to extend the love of Christ to this lost and dying world. The problem is not with having the church in the world. The problem comes when the world gets in the church. Again, it's the difference between having a ship in the water. That's not a problem. That's really where they belong. But the problem becomes when the water gets in the ship. And so Paul begins very early in this book to address the issues of this church. Because it's not enough to simply say, church matters, and pat ourselves on the back and and go our own separate ways. If the church is going to matter like it's meant to matter... You and I are going to have to deal with matters that would hinder or hurt the testimony and influence of the church. Because here's what we'll find. That it's not outside forces that pose the greatest threat to a church. Jesus said the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. It is not outside forces that pose the greatest threat to a church. Sadly, the greatest threat to a gifted and growing church comes from within. Because great blessing is often fertile ground for great battles. And so today we're going to deal with the first of many issues we're going to see in this church. And we're going to talk about the danger of division. Uh, My disclaimer this morning is that I have no one in mind as we go through the Word of God. Uh, But if we find that as we go through the Word of God that the shoe fits... Let's deal with it. Amen? Amen. Look with me at verse number 10 as we begin to go through this passage this morning. Paul wrote, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Can we note first this morning the bond in Christ? I want us to see the bond in Christ. And Paul lays out here in verse number 10 that God has provided the framework for the church to exist, engage, and endure in perfect unity. You notice how he starts in verse number 10. He says, I beseech you, brethren, we are one in family. We are brothers and sisters, blood-bought members of the family of God. John chapter 1 and verse number 12, it said, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. And church, when you and I put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the reality is, is that we get birthed into the family of God. We are brothers and sisters. We are one in family. Paul didn't just point out that we're one in family. He also pointed out that we're to be one in focus. He said, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. One in focus. He is our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Colossians 1 in verse number 18, he said, And he, speaking of Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. And you see, the focus of the church ought to be the head, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we are one in family. We are one in focus, and we are to be one in function. There in verse number 10, he points out how the body of Christ is to be perfectly joined together. That thing, perfectly joined together, that's actually a medical term that is used to describe the unity of the body. Now, the different members of the body are are distinct and there are differences, but they work together in unity one with another. Could you imagine this morning if my tongue disengaged from my brain? It may happen at some point. But you will go, wait a minute, something ain't right about that. God's desire for us is that we, the body of Christ, though we be different, though we be distinct, that we be perfectly joined together, one in function. Over in Ephesians 4, Paul wrote of this, verse number 7, he talks about this. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. He further develops this down in verse number 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And he's gifted the church and Christians in all these different ways. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the building up of the body of Christ. Till we all come in the, what is it? Unity of the faith. God has provided the framework for the church to exist, engage, and endure in perfect unity. And I'm going to tell you, unity, church, is the unavoidable outcome of having the right perspective and having the right priorities. Now, let me make a distinction real quick. A couple of distinctions, actually. Unity is an unavoidable outcome. It's not necessarily a primary objective. What do you mean, preacher? There are certain that would set unity on a pedestal. And and it's unity at all costs. No, it's not. Because we're going to find later on that there are certain things that draw distinct lines. But what happens is, is when you and I have the right perspective and we have the right priorities, one family, one focus, one function, you know what happens? We can't help but be unified. We can't help but be one. And there should be a natural beauty to the body of Christ that flows from the unity he provides. Another distinction to note is that unity is not uniformity. You don't have to like the same things I do. You don't have to use the same brand toothpaste I do, comb your hair the same way I do, think the same way I do on it. Unity is not uniformity. And I look at the body of Christ, and you know what the reality is? There is no reason this should work, humanly speaking. (laughs) There is no reason, humanly speaking, None, that Bill Brown and I should be friends. I just kidding. Love you, Mr. Brown. But I'm going to tell you, Christ breaks down all those barriers. And he makes us one. The young, the old, the rich, the poor, men and women, he makes us 
one. I'm going to tell you the depth of the unity that God has provided is profound. You look at Ephesians 4, there's more verses there on the unity of the body beginning in verse number 3. Paul admonishes us to endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And then he begins to give us some of those bonds of unity. There is one body and one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father... Of all, who is above all, through all, and in you all. And church, hear me. As we consider the bond that there is in Christ, that there is a oneness, there is a connection, there is a harmony, there is a fealty that exists within the body of Christ because of Christ. And I remind us this morning that when Paul writes this, he is writing to a local church. And so this is not, the primary application here is not just fuzzy feelings for Christians everywhere, though we do share a bond with Christians everywhere. The primary application here is the bond that we share in Christ in this local assembly. I'm going to tell you, the bond in Christ matters. But I'm going to... I'm afraid that so often the importance of the bond, the unity that we share in Christ is lost. It's lost for our sense of individuality. It's lost for our sense of distrust of institutions. So often we are about as devoted to our church family as we are our cell phone plan. So long as I feel the benefit outweighs the cost, I'll stick with it. I'm going to tell you, church, the bond we share in Christ is profound. And unity, unity ought be the natural state of every healthy church. And so we see, first of all, the bond in Christ. And that's beautiful to talk about, isn't it? But we know that that's not always how we experience reality, am I right? Look what Paul said beginning in verse 11. He said, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are, what's that word? Contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. You see, as wonderful as the bond is that we share in Christ, so often you and I experience and live the battle in the church. The battle in the church. You see, in the church of Corinth, divisions had crept into this church. And I will say, divisions creep into every church from time to time. And we find here petty cliques that produced ugly contentions, strife and quarreling. Now I will say this, you notice in verse 11, Paul gives a shout out to the house of Chloe. The house of Chloe had enough concern to do something about it. By the way... Church, we ought to have enough love and care for this body that if there is an issue that we we care enough to deal with it biblically. Bring it to light biblically. 
But sadly, do you know what I find that the common experience for the Christian is? That many will talk about us, but few will talk with us. That's all of our experience from time to time. My experience as pastor. Many will talk about me, but few will talk to me. Even concerning matters of the church, many will criticize and many will complain, but few will come to have a biblically constructive conversation. And so kudos to the house of Chloe for being willing to deal with this thing the right way. But as we find divisions that crept into this church, we find that there are battles that are taking place. Now, in this point, I will, I will make the note that this is not primarily over an issue of moral purity. We'll get into divisions and things, uh, uh, church discipline later in this book. But what we see at this point, uh, first of all, we see divisions over personalities. Prominent personalities had become a point of contention and division in the church. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. That's Cephas. Even to the point where Christ was being used in a presumptive and partisan way. Perhaps some suggest that this was a group who maybe even heard Christ teach in person. And so they claimed some, some, some special partisan blessing being of Christ. And we have these prominent personalities within the church and they have become a point of contention and they have become a point of division. Now I will say the Bible does clearly teach that it is right to appreciate and honor those whom the Lord uses to to lead the church. But we must remember that Christianity is not about personalities. I'm going to tell you the American church has a real problem with this. There is a problem of celebrity pastors and Christians where much of the church has devolved into man worship. God hates man worship. God hates that. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, and verse number 6, the Lord references the deeds of the Nicolaitans. It's believed uh, that this group, the Nicolaitans, were ones who, who tried to claim that they had special spiritual status over the common people. That they were above everybody else and should be, should be treated as better than spiritually. God says, I hate that. I hate the idea. Somebody would set themselves over their brothers and sisters in Christ in a way where they, they claim that they are better or, or, or are to be worshipped. You know, I find it interesting that Paul and his missionary travels ran into certain instances where the people wanted to worship him like a god. There was one, and, and, and they had thought Paul was Jupiter, and they had brought sacrifices. And we see it in the book of Acts chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse number 14. But when the apostles, Barnabas and Paul, heard of, when they, when they saw what the people were going to do, they were going to worship them like gods. They rent their clothes, and they ran in among the people, crying out, saying, Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and Preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are therein. And yet even in our day to day, we have people who follow personalities over Christ. I've seen instances where churches bear pastors' names. That is wrong. I've been in instances where, 
where pastors or missionaries or evangelists or certain creature, uh, preachers, creatures, yeah, we are that too. That's the whole brain tongue thing. Are lifted up like celebrities and they give out autographs. I'm going to tell you, that's wicked. Because this thing, this thing of church, this thing of following Christ, it has to be bigger than a man. I'm going to the dentist tomorrow. I might die. But if I die at the dentist tomorrow, this church should still be this full six months from now. Because it ain't about a man. It's about the God man. It's about him. This is not a pastor's church. This is God's church. And we see that Paul pointed out the battle taking place in the church, divisions over personalities. But perhaps it was even more than just personalities. Perhaps it was divisions over preferences. It could have been that these men had become focal points for the preferences of the people that had led to elements of contention and division as well. You see, Paul was the educated man. Those uh, who, who enjoyed that, that deeper thinking and preaching could have been drawn to Paul. And, and Apollos, he was, he was perhaps the eloquent man. He was the young up-and-comer. He was, he, was, he was the new cool kid on the block, if you will. And, and he had an eloquence about himself. Peter was the esteemed one. He was the original, if you would. He was Cephas. Perhaps Christ was the experiential crew. I'm not sure. We can label it a bunch of different ways. But perhaps it was more than personalities. Perhaps it was preferences that was leading to divisions in this church. Here's the thing. We all naturally have our own preferences. And that's okay. Again, you don't, unity is not uniformity. You don't have to like everything the same way I do. Unless it's coffee. And then it does become a matter of... We might have to have a meeting about what David said earlier, but uh, we all naturally have our own preferences, but church, how important is it for us to remember that Christianity is not about my preferences? I'm going to tell you, everywhere you go, no matter what church you attend, you're always going to prefer something we're a little different. The music were a little different. The preacher were a little different. The person, people that sit around you were a little different. No matter where you go, you're always going to prefer something to be a little different. And by the way, we can make a deal over just about anything. Can I tell you what somebody did to me this week? Somebody did an act of sacrilege in this church. I came into my office the other day, and this was sitting on my desk. For those of you who don't know, this is a Dallas Cowboys. I know. I mean, notice how I, I touch it like it's a dirty diaper. Oh, it's, oh it's, it is as bad as ranch dressing. You know, we laugh at that. But I'm going to tell you, how silly are some of the things 
that we get all about. You know, our culture has turned us into to a bunch of what I call Mick Christians. And we go around trying to find the value menu that, that fits, our, fits our desire in the moment. But man, this thing of church, this thing of following Christ, you know, it's got to be bigger than a man and it's got to be bigger than you. It's got to be bigger than you. We see divisions over personalities. We see divisions over preferences. But you know what it really all boils down to is that there's divisions over pride. Whatever the branches of these divisions actually look like, whatever the branches look like, I can promise you this, the root was pride. The root was pride. Proverbs 13 and verse number 10, the Bible says this, Only by pride cometh contention. But with the well-advised is wisdom. Pride is the root of all petty ugliness that rears its head. And can I note here for us this morning that you can be positionally right but petty and ugly in your performance? You can be positionally right and still be petty and ugly in your performance. And here's the problem. You remember point number one? Point number one, what we talk about? We talked about what? The bond in Christ. The problem is, is when we hold to our pride, you know what we're doing? We are butchering the body before a lost and dying world. We are taking what ought to be beautiful in its bond, and we are butchering and disfiguring it before a world who desperately needs to see the power of Christ. The danger of divisions. We see, number one, the bond in Christ that God has provided for the church to exist, engage, and endure in perfect unity, period. That the natural state of a healthy church is unity. But we also find in reality that division creeps in. We find we, we have divisions over personalities. We have divisions over preferences. All of it comes back, though, to divisions over pride. But I want you to notice lastly this morning, and we're going to read here verses 14 through 17. Paul says, I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. And I baptized also the house of Stephanus. Beside, I know not whether I baptized any other. Would you read verse 17 in unison with me? For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. We find the bond that we share in Christ. We find the battle that we experience in the church. But we can't leave here without considering the beauty of the cross. We can't leave here this morning without considering the beauty of the cross. I want us to note the priority of salvation and the cross and how Paul draws a sharp distinction between baptism and salvation. By the way, if baptism were essential for salvation, Paul wouldn't be happy that he didn't baptize people. Paul would have been dunking everybody he could find. If baptism were essential for salvation, Paul would have put a tub in the back of a pickup truck and drove around town and dunked whoever he could find. But he didn't. He said, I'm glad I didn't baptize hardly any of you people. 
Why? Because he draws an obvious distinction between baptism and the gospel. The gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection that brings, of Jesus Christ that brings salvation. And we find here Paul lays out the beauty of the cross. You know, all other religions teach that man must seek God because he has to. But Christianity teaches that God has sought man because he wants to. The gospel is not me doing well enough to reach God. But the gospel, rather, is God, who, by the way, does well enough without me, but because of his love for me and for his glory, he seeks me. You see, the subject of every other religion has to be sought. But Christianity alone proclaims that the sovereign God of the universe seeks us. That God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That though the wage of my sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. That God demonstrated, he manifested, he commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the beauty of the cross. Because I couldn't go to him, he came to me. Because I deserved to die and there was nothing I could do to fix it. He died my death that I might receive his life. That's the beauty of the cross. Is it doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. His love is available to you. Now let's apply it to this passage. Here's the thing. The battle is real, isn't it? And sometimes the battle can be crazy. But hear me. Something happens when you bring the battle before the cross. You know what the cross does? The beauty of the cross, it reminds us that the true battle is already won. Jesus said in John 19 in verse 30, he said, it is finished. It's done. Salvation is accomplished. The beauty of the cross reminds us that we all come the same way by the blood. Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, Paul wrote, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The beauty of the cross. You know, it also reminds us what is truly at stake. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 4, beginning in verse number 3, he said, if our gospel be hid, if it's concealed, it is hid to them that are lost. And whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. You see, the beauty of the cross is that the cross ended the battle. The beauty of the cross is that the cross bridged the gap. What, what happens 
when you bring division over personalities before the cross, you know what you realize? You realize that personalities are nothing before the cross. Because we all come the same way. No one contributes anything to their own salvation. We all come and bow in humility before the cross. And by the way, when we bring it to the cross, we see just how foolish it is to elevate personalities. In the, well, I'm of Paul. Well, I'm of Apollos. I'm of... Who cares? Did Paul die for you? No. The beauty of the cross is that the cross ends the battle. Oh, how foolish it is when we put our personalities before the cross. I'm going to tell you the beauty of the cross is that the cross ends the battle. The cross bridged the gap. You know, I don't know what that preference is. That's causing that, that rift, that contention. I don't know what it is that we wish were a little bit different or, or left instead of right or up instead of down. But you know what? You put it before the cross and you know what you find about our preferences? When we bring it before the cross, we see how foolish it is to quarrel over personal preference. Jesus didn't defeat death and hell so you and I could fight over dumb things. Can I say it again? Jesus didn't bleed, die, defeat death and hell so you and I could fight over dumb things. The cross ends the battle. I'm going to tell you the beauty of the cross is that the cross ended the battle. Now, I'm going to wade in a little bit here. You got hurt. Maybe somebody else did you wrong. You were let down. And you have carried that resentment. By the way, that resentment has created walls. And those walls have created division. But the cross ends the battle. Preacher, how so? Let me ask you, what could they do that the cross didn't already pay for? What did they do that the cross of Christ didn't already pay for? The cross confronts us with the error of holding the body of Christ hostage over a debt that was already paid. The beauty of the cross the cross of Christ confronts us with the reality that it is silly for us to continue to carry what the blood has covered. The beauty of the cross is that it brings a significance that brings everything else into perspective. Church matters. But if this church is going to matter like it's intended to matter, I'm going to tell you there can be nothing more important. There can be nothing more impactful. There can be nothing more central than what Christ has done. 
And when you and I, here's what Paul says in verse 17. When you and I choose to hold on to our battle and we choose our battle over our bond, in essence what we are doing is belittling the cross. And I'm going to tell you, such carnality affects us all. The unity of the church body matters. The bond we share is real. (laughs) So is the battles that we share as well. But church, do you know what the answer is? Get back to the cross. That's the answer. Get back to the cross. Cling to the cross. Hold to the cross. Stay near the cross. Because in the beauty of the cross, we find the beauty he intends for us. Church, we're getting ready to have a time of invitation. It is an opportunity. It's, it's an invitation for us to respond to God as he has spoken to us. Our musicians are coming. I want to ask you this morning is we consider this topic of the danger of divisions and unity in the church. I want to ask you, first of all, has there ever been a point in time in your life where you have received the Lord Jesus as your Savior? I'm going to tell you, God loves you. He came for you. He died for you. He rose from you for you. And He longs for you to receive Him. If you're here this morning and you've never had that moment where you have turned to Christ and placed your faith and trust to Him, could I encourage in just a moment, we're all going to stand with our heads bowed and eyes closed. I want you to encourage, I encourage you to get my attention, get someone's attention. We'd love to be able to take God's word and show you what God has done and how you can receive him as your savior. I'm telling you, there is nothing like being in Christ. And church, let me ask us this morning. Again, I have no, I have no person or uh, instance in mind as we preach this. We're preaching through 1 Corinthians, so we're going to get to deal with a lot of fun stuff this year. But let me ask you, how's our bond? We're, we're one family. We ought to have one focus. We ought to have one function. How's our bond? What battle is taking place in your heart and life that you need to bring and lay before the cross today. It is only when we bring ourselves again and again and again to the beauty of the cross that we can find the beauty God intends for us. Would you stand together this morning, heads bowed and eyes closed?